Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got What Businesses Can Learn from Sports Psychology, and I've got Dr. Martin Turner and Dr. Jane Barker. We've got a two-for-one today. Thanks for coming on the show, guys. A pleasure. Thanks oh, for having us on. Hey, I wanted to ask you because you know you. Uh, I was looking at the front of the book. It's like, ah, they got these silhouettes. What that's what's the silhouette thing all about? And then you go through the book and you got these fantastic quotes all the way through the book uh, with silhouettes for different sports and whatever. How did you guys decide on these quotes? Because some of them are spot on. I think one of the things that we really wanted to achieve with the book is to provide really nice, easy to understand examples uh, of these. You know really elite performers using some of these psychological skills so it was a case of just trying to sift through um, the sources that we had autobiographies um, um, looking through media articles and stuff to really pick out um, what we thought were the best examples Mm. well they're awesome and uh, you're right the book really flows very very nicely it's it's very I don't know, I would consider it almost like has an academic feel because there's so much research that went into it but it's so light and and easy to um, absorb because you've got all these small sections and it, it's not like this. some of these intimidating tomes that come out. It's like teeny tiny text, page after page after page. It's daunting. But with this book, it has this very nice flow and uh, you've got these wonderful graphics that help you visualize some of your concepts. So uh, for readers that get into the book, I think they're going to really appreciate it. Yeah, I think probably one of the things we were we were conscious of as well is, is trying to provide an evidence base behind, you know, a lot of the claims that we were making, a lot of the tools that we were suggesting individuals to, to use. And I think sometimes with, with books of this type, you know, often people are making suggestions and there might not always be that that evidence there. So we were quite keen to do that. So we're trying to get the balance between, I guess, the research and also as well making the, the strategies and the techniques very applicable for the reader mm-hmm. is, is also it's also a challenge, and I think you know we've gone some way to doing that. So, the, essentially, the, the tools and the techniques that we're exposing people to are things that they can be doing pretty much straight away from reading the book. They're things that they can be embedding very quickly and can st- certainly start to see some change in how they deal with stress, how they deal with pressure, and how they really become, I guess, better performers. I think, but also, you know, we appreciate your comments about the way that it's written because one of the things we're very conscious of is. Um, you know, communicating research uh, in a way that's palatable to, to everybody. And, and sometimes research, when you read it, it, it is, as you said, it is um, it can be quite complex. It's not massively enjoyable to read all of the time. So we really wanted to take the research and make sure that it's really evidence-based and the stuff that we're suggesting um, has been used before by uh, business people, by athletes, by people in the military, but make that digestible. So it's easy to understand and anybody can just pick the book up and, and start using these skills and techniques um, straight away. Nice. Now, let's talk a little bit about you guys, you know, two doctors um, in the room. Is one of you the really super neat guy and the, the other guy's the really slob like you see in TVs? Are you both neat or are you both slobs? Just both slobs. Both yeah. slobs. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the zone too much. Uh, so what's your specialties? Well, I guess both of us sort of come from a sports psychology background. So most, you know, in fact, the majority of our work and the majority of our research has been around helping 
uh, sports people fulfill their potential and maximize how they perform and that might might be at both an individual and a group level and more so working with leaders as well around developing their leadership skills and, and I guess around the culture of sports teams and probably in the last five or six years I guess what we've started to notice and been asked to do a lot of is translate a lot of that that information that we an experience that we have from working in sport to other performance domains and and a lot of people in business in medicine in the military in politics they recognize that the similarities between sports psychology and the psychology of what they're being asked to do within their particular performance so we've been asked to, to, to come along and and work with indeed a lot of blue chip companies a lot of other organizations who are dealing with performance because of our experience and expertise from a, a sport perspective and um yeah i don't know if there's yeah. i think yeah i think to drill down a little bit further i mean one of the things that we specialize in our, our main specialism really is helping people to perform under pressure you know whether that's um a student taking an exam or giving a presentation or whether it's an athlete playing in the final of a tournament um you know that pressure is something that can really destroy performance but at the same time it's something that can really help a performer to perform at their best so one of the things that we've been doing it is to try to help people to harness that pressure and to try and see stress as a really good thing and something that's going to be helpful for their performance so that's been something that's been our focus for the past five or six years yeah, it's really interesting. You use the word pressure there and performance. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, when they're in business, they don't really understand they're under tremendous amount of pressure. Um, and to be able to to look at it in a, in a completely fresh way, like what you guys are looking at on, on the sports level, it kind of takes it out of that day-to-day realm and abstracts it into a totally different reality where they can uh, be looking at it from afar. And, and a lot of times when you're trying to improve yourself as a business person or, or you know, or a student or whatever, you're you're stuck in the forest. You can't see the trees or can't see the forest for the trees. And by having it as an, a, I don't want to say like a metaphor because it's not, you're actually using techniques used by sports people, but I think 99% of people, they're not day-to-day sports people they may go jogging they may try you know a little bit of a badminton every now and again they may ride their bike but really they don't look at that as a performance thing they look at it as this is me getting away from work this is me trying to get rid of stress so my question is uh athletes yes they have stress but they also have this great out which is the actual physical movement of the body um working out very, very hard and, and overcoming the, the mental, uh, basically is your brain saying, oh, you can't do that, and actually your body can. Uh, but for the, for the business person, they're stuck sitting on a chair. So how do they deal with pressure without actually getting up and running around the office? Well, I think some, you know, some of what you said there as well is that I think sometimes people in business, they don't see themselves as performers because – you know, maybe they've just never considered it, but actually what, what they do is about performance, whether it's going into a high pressure board meeting or a high pressurized sales pitch, you know, that is a performance very much like, you know, an, an Olympic athlete standing on the 100 meter sprint line. So I think sometimes a lot of our work is, is around trying to get them to perceive themselves as a, you know, we hear the, the corporate athlete used quite a bit and it's about getting them to recognize that that actually you know, taking on that mantle of a corporate athlete requires them to think well, eat well, sleep well, and recover well. And I guess partly what we're trying to say is, you know, we can we can give them the right the right tools to psychologically deal with um, deal with some of the challenges, but also as well alter how they view themselves um, within that particular situation. Probably Martin can, can go into a bit more detail, I guess, on the, the, the skill side of things. 
But I think sort of Jamie mentioned the idea of a corporate athlete. And really one of the things we try to do with the book and one of the things that we do with our work is, is to talk about how athletes use mental skills, uh, but business people can use the exact same mental skills. The end goal is different. The outcome or the type of activity they're doing is different, but they can use the same types of mental skills. They can prepare mentally in the same way. They can, as Jamie alluded to, they can still take on the right nutrition. They can do, They can still rest well and recover well. Um, the performances that they go into are just as difficult as sports performances, and sometimes they can be even more difficult um, when you think about the kind of pressures that are on people um, in the financial sector these days. Those those high pressures. Um, can be dealt with in the same way that athletes deal with, uh, you know, the final of a tournament, or they're, they're similar types of of uh, tasks and activities in terms of pressure. They're just in different contexts, so we can apply the same skills for for those things. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was thinking the word marathon comes up. Do Do you think people look at it the wrong way? Say, oh well, business is a marathon, so I'm just like chugging away, chugging away. The, a lot of the ways you guys are describing it is it's not a marathon. It, it's it's specific to an actual event and then you train and focus for that actual happening like a big meeting coming up on Wednesday and presentation in a month and then focusing like an athlete on that one particular thing instead of like this is me just chugging along running along for my marathon approach to business well we know that one of the things we see in business quite a lot is they'll have good kind of key performance targets where and they're very good at planning they're very good at thinking about their goals where do we want to be and how do we want to get there? But actually, some of the performances that are required to get there sometimes let them down. So they might have to pitch for a significant amount of money and they know they need that money to be successful in their business. But when they turn up to the pitch, they completely fluff their lines and they're too nervous to present properly. If you have good plans and strategies, that's one thing. But if you're unable to execute them because you're stressed, because you're nervous, because you can't control your thoughts and emotions, then that can be quite frustrating because you can spend lots of money on planning, but if your staff or if you as an individual can't deliver on those things, um, then that becomes an issue. So we think about um, performances and how in business you have to have these different isolated performances, as you say. How can you maximize your potential in those performances to make sure that the goals and the targets that you have are achievable? I think also as well, we, um, we see this a lot in sport, that there's often a real focus on the outcome a focus on winning or losing or get, you know, and certainly in business, you know, getting a certain amount of money or, or delivering, you know, the perfect presentation. Well, actually what people do is they lose sight of the process, the things they need to do to deliver that actual performance. And, and not, we know that people spend, waste a lot of energy and, and use, you know, a lot of mental energy worrying around uncertainty and things they cannot control. So I guess in the book, what we've tried to do as well is, is give people real control and the sense of control over how they think, the emotions they feel, and the things that they can do prior to performances to, to give them some ownership and not let the situation always dictate how they feel, but actually let themselves dictate how they feel and think about dealing with pressure or dealing with a big interview, for example. There's some very... Um interesting sections in the book that actually talk about those cycles where if you get into a negative cycle or a positive cycle and the way you're approaching uh, this is like all athletes is like if you if you're overthinking it then you kind of get in this perpetual uh, but what if this happens and what if that happens and that actually zaps your energy it zaps your confidence and when it's time for you to actually go you basically stumble at the starting block 
Mm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we talk a lot about paralysis by analysis, particularly in terms of decision making and the fact that, you know, it, it's a, a, a pretty big killer of making good decisions, overanalyzing situations and overanalyzing thoughts and events uh, and information in general. Um, so we know that that happens to athletes as well. We know that when they're producing skill, um, no matter what sport they play, they have to produce some sort of skill. When that skill becomes automatic, when it's highly trained, uh, when they become an expert, that skill can pretty, pretty much run on autopilot. They don't need to think too much about that skill to produce it. And it's the same thing in business when people are making decisions. Uh, they're good professionals. They know the, the um, they know the business. They know the environment they're working in. They don't need to overanalyze every small aspect to make good decisions. Quite often, best decisions are made when it's a gut instinct or when not too much information is taken on board. So, there's a really nice, you know, some nice metaphors in sport to do with paralysis by analysis. And we also talk about ironic processes, which are telling yourself not to think about something. It makes you think about it even more. So an athlete, an athlete might say, you know, a golfer might say, don't miss this put, don't miss this put. And it makes them miss it. A business person might say, you know, don't stumble um, my words at the start of the presentation. Or they might say, um, whatever you do, don't mention this in the meeting or whatever you do, make sure this is right and that's right. They overthink it. They tell themselves not to do things and they end up you know, choking, essentially. Mm. Well, it's also uh, the ability to not get stuck on your failure. It's like, oh, I'm really sorry I made a mistake in that meeting. And then halfway through the meeting, guys, I just want to let you know I'm, I'm really sorry about the beginning. At the end of the meeting, they say, geez, I really feel bad about that, that little blunder I made at the beginning of the meeting. By them bringing it up again and again, it frustrates people. They say, yeah, we know, get over it. Whereas inside, personally, think, gosh, I feel so terrible about it. I better reiterate this or they just don't think I take it seriously. And people getting stuck on that. And I think uh, high-performance athletes, they get over stuff incredibly quickly. They flub uh, like in tennis. Like that's a super high pressure. You've got maybe 7 to 12 seconds between serves. If you flub a serve, then you get over it and you – try it again and and you don't bring the baggage with you. Do you think this is a major problem with not sports people but but definitely with business people? I think it it stems from a person's philosophy I think a little bit as well about, mm. about how they how they see themselves and how they see the things that they're trying to do in the greater context of the world and and sometimes you know people will um, have a philosophy that actually everybody makes mistakes and you know human beings are fallible you know nobody is perfect and you know there's some great stuff on on the internet where you can you know you can go through the list of all the successful people in the world and and from pop groups to politicians to great military leaders and they have all made mistakes you know and and I think the key thing is that actually you know we often talk around success obviously being a big learning process we also know as well that that learn that, that failure or putting ourselves in stre moderately stressful situations is also a hugely impactful learning experience for people because it allows them to to reflect and learn from that to perhaps not make the same, same mistakes again sometimes if a person just wins and wins and wins they kind of don't really understand the hardship they perhaps don't really understand how they've got there and so I, I guess sometimes, you know, we, we talk a lot around with people around their philosophy, how they see themselves in the world that they're they're performing in and, you know, how they view maybe failure and mistakes, because sometimes going into a situation with this is everything, this is my entire world, I'd better not mess this up. For some individuals, that would be highly motivational. But for others, we know that that can just be too much and can just tip them over the edge. Mm. 
Yeah, it's going to. I mean, there's a chapter in the book um, about this idea of smarter thinking, which is about saying, okay, look, how many demands are you placing on yourself? Are you saying that I must, without doubt, perform well in this presentation? Are you saying to yourself that failure here is terrible and I'll be a complete idiot if I mess things up? Because if that's the language that you're using to yourself, you're probably putting so much pressure on yourself that you're making it impossible to to perform as you should perform. So we know that the words people use when they describe success and failure is really important, especially when failure does happen. If their philosophy is, if I fail, I'm a failure, then it takes that person a long time to come back from that that you know that that failure. So so we kind of helping people to change their language and recognize that as Jamie said, you are a fallible human being, just like everybody else on the planet. You're allowed to make mistakes. And actually, when you look at successful people, they've made quite a lot of mistakes and they still do. Um, but it's how they, how they come back from those mistakes, which makes them successful, not the fact that they don't make any. Mm. One of the things I'm, I, I noticed a lot in the book, it, it's very personal. It, it's people talking to their inner self, how I'm going to do this. And I wanted to talk to you about the importance of coaches, how people outside of yourself, uh, how much you should rely on them to give you perspective. Well, I, I think certainly the, the coaches that we work with and the, the business leaders that we work with, we, we, we try to empower them and work through them to create an environment that, that does exactly the things that we're talking around, about smarter thinking, about you know failure being just a consequence of, of being a human being and, and really to try and encourage th- those types of messages. And obviously, if we're part of a group or we're part of a team, a business team, and our leader is kind of you know giving us those messages, of course, you know that's a, that's a huge barometer for our motivation, for our confidence, for how we certainly see difficult situations. If we've got a leader who's going in there saying we, we can't make a mistake here, don't mess this up. This is a pitch we must win. Think of the pressure that's adding. If we have a, a leader that goes in who's a little bit more calm, a bit more philosophical, has a level of perspective there, we're likely to get more of a a confidence response. We're likely to get individuals who relax a bit more and deliver the performance that is required. So we know that the leadership um, and the, the emotions and the language that leaders use has a huge impact on you know the, the group and, and the followers, as it were. And it's why in sport we, you know, we, we often hear of individuals buying into a certain style of leadership, whereas others being really turned off by that, or uh, individuals saying, "I was really stressed by what my coach was saying because of the language in which they were using," or, or we, we call it emotional contagion. That, that emotions are very contagious, and if we've got a, a leader who's very irate, very anxious. We're going to pick up on that as human beings subconsciously and all of a sudden we're going to start to feel that level of anxiety and anger that perhaps the, the person that it's standing in front of us is feeling. One of the things that's been useful, one of the things that we try to get across in the book as well, is that you know, as an individual you are responsible for how you feel and behave. So coaches can't dictate how you feel and behave so much but what they can do is help you to self-reflect because actually most people are pretty good uh, understanding what they feel and how they behave and what their thoughts are. They just need to be pushed in the right direction. So one of the questions that we get at coaches to ask their staff and their athletes is, what are you telling yourself 
about this situation that is causing things like anxiety, that's causing you to want to run away instead of face the pressure? You know, what are you telling yourself about that situation that is causing causing those bad feelings that you've got? Because when an individual starts to realise that they've got complete control over those feelings and behaviours, it empowers them completely. So when they face pressure, they realise that they can just use different thoughts and have some different beliefs and they can get a different emotional outcome um, that might be better for performance. So it's actually sometimes when working with coaches, getting them to ask the right questions of the people that, that work with them, um, just to help them to become more self-aware. And that's often a really useful tool. Instead of having the coach saying, look, this is how you should feel. This is how to get there. It's kind of trying to develop a bit more self-awareness. Yeah, and also if if you're constantly doing that, then you're going to have people in the back that are going, "Uh aha, but in their head they're going like, God, this guy will never shut up and I have my own system or I don't believe what you're saying. Um, One of the problems that, you know, business people have is being able to read a room or read a board table. Um, How should people approach this? Because if you're telling people you need to do X and 50% of the people are getting it and the other 50% aren't on board, are there things you can do to get people on board? It's a good question. I think mm. one of the things that we try to kind of advise people when going into especially those types of situations is that what can you control in that situation? The thing you can control is your delivery of the information that you know. And we encourage people to think of themselves as an expert going into that situation. You know more about what you're talking about than the people sitting in front of you. What you can't control is people's reaction to that. So actually during a presentation, what we'd be trying to get the person to do is is just control what they can control. My delivery, my presentation, how I word things, uh, my body language, for example. We know that because you can't control how others view you and how others behave, once they start looking at those things and trying to trying to work from them, it becomes very difficult. They become locked in a bit of a cycle um, where they don't actually understand where to go next because one person reacts one way, one person reacts a completely different way. So it's a very um, it's a very dangerous game to play, I guess, to try and get people on your side. The better way to do it is to just to go in there with your plan and say, I'm going to execute this plan perfectly. I can completely control this plan. It's devised by me. And, and I'm confident that it's going to be successful. In terms of how people react, it's just one of those things that you, you can never predict. Well, I think if you know your team, it, it's almost like I'm going to present it this way, uh, and then I'm going to have two or three meetings with some people I know that are that aren't going to get it on that way, and, and actually sit down with them and say, "Hey, you know, that was that was what I'm presenting to everybody else, but for you, these are the three things I need you to think about." And then you're doing sub coaching. Hmm. That's a good point. One of the things we'll often get people to think about is what are the first three things that you need to do in this pitch or this presentation? Because what we find with people, um, with athletes, with business people, and even with students in exams, is that once they do those first few things um, correctly, then momentum takes them and they can perform. Um, They can really kind of, they find their way naturally. They understand what to do. If they can just get those three things in the bag, so for an athlete, it might be, okay, I want my first pass to be really strong or my first movement to be really positive or my first tackle to, to let the guy know that I'm here. You know, In an exam, a student might write down everything that they can recall from a specific theory or model. In terms of business performance, we might say, get your opening 30 seconds completely nailed. 
so it's perfect and you're really confident in those 30 seconds make sure that your body language is really is really good in that first 30 seconds once they start doing these things and they start feeling successful at them momentum takes them and they can and it carries them through the rest of the presentation pretty well what happens is when people go in there thinking about some of the tricky points like oh how am i going to present this and what if they ask a question about that they're already focusing on things that aren't going to help them in their performance and they don't find that momentum so one of the things we we try to encourage coaches to do is to get the athlete to think of those first three things that you want to do that you want to really get in the bag to make sure you perform well everything else will, will take care of itself after that point you know and in your book you kind of mentioned this is is you've got different brain levels and and I think if you're in panic mode or or you're you're second guessing yourself your brain actually dumbs down and goes into almost neanderthal fight or flight mode and uh, then you're just adding more hurdles for yourself and and I think that strategy you just mentioned is like go in with the positive get the momentum going make your first couple of steps or make your first couple of statements and then relax and go into it you're actually you're going to be performing at, at, at a higher proficiency rate than if you're struggling at the very beginning by forcing yourself to wor- worry about uh, things that you can't control. Yeah, that's right, I think. And one of the things we do in the book early on is really stick a fork in the road and say that there's two ways that you can react to pressure situations. One is a challenge state, which is helpful for us. Um, in terms of the brain and the body, we're operating at a level which is going to be really functional. You're going to feel confident. You're going to feel in control. You're going to focus on those things that you can do well. In terms of the bodily response, we know that's really helpful. We know that it gets energy, it gets oxygen, it gets blood to the brain, which means we can make decisions and perform as we'd like to perform. The other way to go is called a threat state. This is when we're not performing confidently, we're not focused on the things we can control, and we're focusing on things that will probably end up in, in failure or disaster. Um, the body reacts to this in, as you say, a panic mode. So actually what it does is it, it doesn't send as much blood and oxygen to the brain and the body as it should, but it also makes us think about things that aren't particularly conducive to successful performance. So it comes back to that paralysis by analysis. It comes back to that poor decision-making. So there's a real link between the brain and the body, between what we think when going into a pressure situation and how our body reacts. And we know that we can tell a lot about an individual by just measuring those bodily symptoms. Hmm. I want to dig down into the book for a second. People don't have a lot of time, and this is a is a lot of information in this book. How should people uh, approach the book? Should they read it from cover to cover, or can they jump in and just jump to, you know what, uh, chapter three seems pretty good, think smart, or uh, be in control sounds what I want to do, and just jump straight to that section. Will they get lost? Will they not get as much benefit that if they read from cover to cover? I think, I think it's, people have certain pinch points. So as you say, they might go in and say, actually, you know, I've got a real issue with confidence, so I'm going to start with the confidence chapter. Um, they might go in and say, actually, I want to learn how to relax. Um, so they might look at the self-regulation um, chapter. But actually, what we would advise is that the individual you know, starts at the beginning, as the old saying goes, and really understands the structure of the book, because what we do is we layer things quite a lot. So actually, that, that bit that I talked about there, about the challenge and threat states, we know that to get into a challenge state, you've got to be confident, you've got to be in control, you've got to focus on the things you need to do to perform well. Um, you know, it's a package deal. Um, so actually, understanding the structure is important. So the cover-to-cover idea, I think, has value. But I think if an individual picks up the book for the first time, they can go to one of these chapters 
and it would give them a nice insight and it's a very quick insight into what kind of skills they can use to actually improve their confidence, to actually help them to feel in control, to help them to relax more or to help them to adapt to stressful situations. So it, it can be used very flexibly. I think that's how we, we use it with the people that we work with as well. So we, we encourage them, you know, in, a, in an ideal world to read cover to cover because of the reasons that Martin gives, but also as well post you know, a workshop or post any delivery that we do, it also enables them to, to go back and reinforce certain areas and, as Martin suggests, digest it at a level that they want. And they can be confident that the suggestions we're making as well are evidence-based and and are easy to integrate. You know, there's nothing in there that, that is hugely um, alarming or difficult to do necessarily. It just requires a level of commitment and a level of reinforcement. But, but they are relatively quick wins and they're things that people can do almost instantaneously to start to change and think about how they approach difficult or challenging situations. And I think that's really how the feedback that we've had from people that we've worked with and so forth is that, that it is that. It enables them to, to get to the information very, very quickly because of the way it's written, but also the strategies that we're suggesting as well. And the, the, the final chapter gives some, some guide, guidance about how to actually use this book going forward in the future and kind of give some spot, spot tests around some of the, the ideas we talk about. So at this point in time, what is your level of confidence? Uh, what is your level of control? To give them an indication of, of the journey they've been on, but also some areas that they might still need to work on the, the the mental skills that we talk about we always talk about them like physical skills and you can't just do it once and expect to be an expert in using things like visualization or using things like self-talk you know it takes constant practice um, in the same way an athlete would constantly practice any skill so the individual reading the book i guess needs to make a commitment to those things but also um, integrate it into their everyday life so it's not just something they use when they're in that business environment. It's something that they're using when they're doing everyday tasks and activities. They're visualizing themselves doing things well. They're using really good constructive self-talk. Um, they're using this relaxation techniques w when they've got a moment's peace to really help to integrate those skills. So they just occur automatically and naturally when they're in that performance environment. I think this book is around generating, obviously we talk about skills for performance, but actually it's about developing life skills as well that change how a person views themselves, maybe their philosophy. We talk a lot with clients that we work with about generating a recipe for success. And this book gives people a lot of the ingredients to be able to be successful when it matters. And also as well about developing a positive culture. So we often know that people will focus, focus and spend so much, so much time focusing on the things that they're not so good at, their deficiencies, their their concerns, their worries, their fears, or actually we'd say, okay, well, what am I good at? What what are the positive attributes? You know, asking questions like, what can I be world's best at? What can I what can I develop to become a real world leader in? Um, so it's about trying to give people that that different type of ingredients to maybe how they they fuel their brain and how they view themselves. Listen to you guys. It, it almost seems to me that by taking the knowledge that's in this book, you could also help uh, deal with procrastination because one of the major problems that athletes would have and, and business people would have is going to the gym, you know, doing that repetitive. Oh, I've done it 500 times. I've done it 10,000 times. I don't want to do it. And having the fortitude or the, or the tools to say, I enjoy it when, I, when I'm on the treadmill or when I'm pushing my weights or when I'm preparing for a presentation or when I'm doing the dishes. I actually enjoy it. What is the mental trick to get from 
I'm watching something on TV, I should be doing the dishes and getting up and doing the dishes. Or I'm doing this meeting, which is totally a waste of my time, I should be working on my presentation. Or I should be doing my sprints because in a week's time, I'm going to be needing that skill. Yeah, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good question, I guess. And what we know around sort of procrastination some, is that often it's underpinned by um, perfectionism, people striving for... You know, they have an expectation they must do a certain thing well and, and therefore the reason they procrastinate from it is because they're not sure they can fulfill that level of expectation. And sometimes that is then fueled by a person's belief in their own ability. So sometimes the reason people don't always go to the gym is because they don't believe that they can either do it or that they don't have a good perception of maybe how they look or how they feel when they're in that gym situation. So I think, you know, underpinning procrastination largely and, and what the book talks around is how we how we generate confidence, how we where we get our confidence from. So what are the co- core sources of, of confidence information and which are the, the most important sources for us as well? So sometimes it can be what a coach or a parent or a, um, a, a leader says to us that can really really generate confidence for others it might be seeing a colleague do something well we might generate confidence and belief from that so the book really talks around trying to give people lots of belief and where we can get that from but also as well i think it talks around helping people to manage their expectations because sometimes if i go into a situation with a very um, i cannot fail i have to do this situation as well as i possibly can that can often put people people off that and indeed with colleagues I guess that we see sometimes they procrastinate from writing because they find they set a real high standard for what they're going to write and often it's easy to avoid that easy to avoid writing than it is actually to go go through that and why is that well it comes from how they're viewing themselves and the activity that they're going to do so again the book is around trying to help people manage their beliefs and their expectations but also you know this idea of procrastination is interesting because Quite often what we see is it stems from people thinking they can't tolerate um, discomfort. So I'm not going to go and do that treadmill thing because it makes me uncomfortable and it's <laughs> painful and I don't like it. I, I must always have comfort in my life. I can't stand it when I'm uncomfortable. When people have those kinds of beliefs, then they're unlikely to do things um you know, that are uncomfortable, such as stay on the treadmill for an extra minute or, for example, go to that meeting that perhaps they they find uncomfortable or they don't particularly like. So sometimes it's teaching people to have a bit more resilience about them and to actually adapt to some of these difficult situations and to learn that actually, as a human being, you can tolerate an immense amount of uh, discomfort. You can tolerate an immense amount of adversity. Um Actually teaching them and helping them to see that can sometimes help them to achieve their goals and stop procrastinating. Because often people don't want to do the things that they find uncomfortable, which is kind of human nature. And you have to learn to override that and actually realize that it's not going to kill me. It's just a little bit of discomfort. Uh, We see that uh, in in pain management. You know, you can have physical pain. So that's stay on the treadmill type of mentality. But you can also have mental pain where you're sitting in a meeting and you think, you know, this is so boring. It's actually hurting my brain to sit here and, and listen to these people. If you can't stay in there, then you're going to have difficulties. If you can manage that that mental pain and that discomfort, then you're going to be OK. So I think we see that quite a bit with students as well and maybe how they approach, you know, difficult um, and complex activities, particularly around, you know, statistics and research methods. You know, it's a topic that within universities they often find quite challenging. And I think sometimes they... 
it, it is the fact that some of them just can't stick it out because it's too uncomfortable. It, it hurts them mentally. But the guys actually that are able to see it through, to work through a process and to, you know, to to harness that um, discomfort are the ones that actually push through. And we know that if we think of military examples, we know that the guys that are resilient are able to, you know, appreciate that they're going through a level of pain, but not actually appraise the pain, but maybe see more of the end goal and see the process of what they're trying to do. And if they can stick in there, as Martin suggests, then you're more likely to be able to to, to deliver and, and actually see a, see an, an event through to the through to the end. I think a, a good a good example from an athlete who is kind of went into acting and then into politics is Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was watching the, the documentary Pumping Iron um, the other week, and he talks about you know these repetitions that they do to build the muscle. He talks about the last two or three repetitions being the ones that separate the you know the Mister Universe from the the, the not Mister Universe. Going through that pain barrier, can you go through that pain barrier? If you can't, then you're not going to be world's best. If you can develop a strategy to help you to, no matter what you feel, no matter how painful this is, but you can get through it, then you can kind of develop yourself into world's best. You know, and, and having that mentality is, is quite difficult, but it's it's almost having confidence in yourself to take yourself through that discomfort and actually not having this mentality that I can't stand discomfort um, because uh, – more than likely you can tolerate the discomfort. Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting. You you said uh, seeing things through, and I I think a lot of people, what they do is – they get get the idea, or I'm gonna I'm gonna lose weight, or I'm gonna become this, or I'm gonna, that's easy to do in your head. It's like you can vision it, and here I am going across the line. Getting there is the hard part. It, it, forcing yourself to do those that training, or forcing yourself to to work with your business or work with your division to push it to where you want it to go is incredibly difficult because you know the your vision is instantaneous, but getting there you have to go this incredibly uh, convoluted path uh, of, of meetings or whatever to get to that point. And I think people get worn down by that. And if they're doing it again and again and again every day, then after a while I say, ah, what's the point? What's the effort? So how do you get uh, like an athlete or, or, or a, a high-performance business person to not get stuck in that rut? Oh, okay, that's a good question. I, I think, think, yeah. I mean, one of the main things that we use with, with athletes and with business people is how do you set your goals are you focusing on the outcome or are you focusing on the process and that seems to be a really key thing if you recognize that that some of those processes aren't going to be particularly nice and some of those processes are going to be really difficult and sometimes boring then it's easier to take because you you see the whole picture you've got that end goal in place but it's as you said that's easy to see you can easily see that end goal and anybody can just pick a goal at the top of their heads and just say, right, I want to do this. I want to do that. Um, I want to run a marathon. Uh, I want to be, um, you know, the country's highest earning business professional or whatever it might be. But actually it comes down to those minute goals. It comes down to those percentages. Um, often within performance settings, we call them marginal gains and it's about processes. What processes am I going to go through to get there? And it's making sure that you hit those smaller goals on the way to, to those bigger goals. So it's good to have that vision in mind and to have that idea. But also it's really good to do some detailed planning around what are the processes that I'm going to have to do. Recognizing that some of those processes aren't fun. Some of the processes are going to be painful. But they're all necessary to get to get you there. If the individual sees each process as valuable, 
um, towards their goal, they're much more likely to engage in those processes um, and not kind of see them as, oh, I have to do this because I have to do this. They really see it as a valuable part of their overall goal. And that's really the key, I think. I think as well, getting people to understand that, you know, how bad is it going to be? Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, nobody's probably going to die and they're probably not going to die and they're not going to get injured. And they are going to be able to tolerate some of this uncomfortability that that they might come across. So I think it's, um, you know, sometimes about having that perception as well, that it's it's going to be maybe bad, but it's not going to be as bad as what they might perceive. And, you know, we could all relate to that, I guess, that sometimes we build a situation up that this is going to be really terrible, it's going to be tough, it's going to be challenging. But often when we get there, it isn't anywhere near what we've expected. And I think sometimes that level of reality um, is, is often a good way of getting people to embrace difficult situations. Um, you know, we've all probably sat exams where we've built it up beforehand. It's going to be the toughest thing in the world. We get in there. Actually, we kind of go because we've gone through our process preparation. When we get in there, it's probably not as bad. And to some extent, we maybe enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me a lot of my daughters when they, they're going, oh, my God, I got exams this week. I said, well, you know, you've got a technique. You do the exam. You skip over the questions that get you stuck, get through all the questions. And when you have time, go back and kill those those other questions. And they come through and say, well, that wasn't that bad. And I think it's like getting into the habit of attacking something with a system, overcoming the problem. Um, sometimes you struggle, but sometimes you just blaze through it. But then remembering next time, it's like, oh, yeah, I did that three months ago, or I did that last week. I can do it again, and I can do it again. And eventually, you get uh, very, very good at dominating the, the uh, things that are thrown in front of you that you have to jump over. That's a really key skill, yeah. I think. But also, it's to recognize that for somebody to fastidiously and, and very consistently go through their routine and make preparations and make plans, you need to have a little bit of an edge there. You need to have a bit of anxiety. Um, you know, you need to be sometimes a little bit worried about what might happen. That can be really helpful. And, you know, a lot of psychologists might say, look, when you're going into a performance, Anxiety is going to completely destroy that performance. Because actually what we know is anxiety can be extremely helpful for performance. It keeps you on that edge. It means that you're focused on the right things. It also means that you're taking preparation to, to make sure you are going through your processes. We know that people who are too relaxed are complacent. They don't put in the effort and therefore they fail. We know that if you're too anxious, then that can be a problem. But actually removing the anxiety is probably never a good thing. So having that edge can be really beneficial, and that's one of the distinctions we make between the challenge and the threat state. The, the challenge state isn't saying that you're completely relaxed, that you're not worried. Um, the anxiety is still there. It's just that you know you can do it. You know you're under control, and you're focused on the things you need to do. Um, so I think that anxiety can really drive that preparation and make sure that you go through your processes really consistently. Well, one of the things we talk a lot about um, with people as well is about being concerned is a very helpful emotion. It's a very helpful way of thinking. Um, being concerned means that actually I'm likely to, to put hard work in to prepare for something because uh, to some extent I am worried about how it goes, but but that worry and concern is healthy because it, I don't want to let myself down. I perhaps want to deliver a, a level of performance because it's meaningful to me. And if we think of all Olympic, Olympic athletes or high, highly successful individuals, they would all probably argue that they were concerned about what they were doing, and, but in a healthy way, in a good way. 
not concerned in a negative way where actually they become complacent or over relaxed you know that they they're actually concerned and therefore they start to do all the things that are going to be really really helpful for them in preparing and also delivering and i think that's something that often people get a misconception around they think actually i don't want to be anxious i shouldn't be concerned why am i why am i thinking about this well it's really important to you so it makes sense to think about it but what you want to be doing is thinking about it in the right way and of course you know starting to look at difficult situations as an opportunity you know, an opportunity to show off what you have, the skills that you have, the, the the years and years of practice that you put in to deliver that 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 scenario. And you know, it's often interesting that people like Usain Bolt. You know, often people go, "Well, look at him; he's smiling. Why is he doing that? Does he not care?" Well, as psychologists, we'd look at that and go, "Actually, he cares in the right way. Look at what he's doing. He's he spent hours and hours and hours." putting his body through difficult situations why not enjoy an olympic final because actually it makes no sense to not enjoy it given all the hard work that you've put yourself through it actually makes sense to go out there and have a smile and enjoy it and absorb as much as you can because you know at the end of the day you've you've put a lot into that and you've worked so hard for it well i think also that that you know we spend a tremendous amount of our lives looking at uh, people that um, have done more than ourselves because that's what motivates us. Like, gosh, if I was only as good as him or whatever, uh, not realizing that their headspace is totally different. They're not saying, "Wow, I'm the top of the heap. I'm, you know, I'm the best. Now I can kick back and relax." Look at what Arnold did. He went from uh, an incredible weightlifter and then got into a completely uh, different career, which was the movie industry, which is very, very competitive and very difficult. And he may not have been the best actor in the world but he went and he made a career of it and then he went hey you know what i'm gonna get into politics and then he got into politics and and he again and again and again he was just kept on pushing forward and having these goals to shoot for which uh, a lot of people don't think of it's like oh if only i i was a great bodybuilder instead of like well that's one step and I, I think a lot of uh, great business leaders are constantly like doing stuff like that. They're evolving themselves, which evolves their company. And people that aren't hitting the mark is they don't have that carrot or they don't have that goal in front of them. So how does an athlete or um, motivated business leader create these goals that are realistic? Uh, or do they just put a goal in front of them and push forward and just drag everybody along with them? I think a, a lot of successful certainly leaders and coaches within sport you know you know the guys that really stand out as being you know phenomenally successful are always looking ahead they're always looking how can i stay ahead of the competitors so you know and that is constantly seeking as martin mentioned earlier marginal gains how can i make a difference and it might be about bringing experts in it might be about reevaluating their position within the team or the business um, it might be about restructuring it might be about having a different philosophy but ultimately we know successful people are constantly striving so they're always looking for you know the next win the next big pitch the next um, the, the, the next contract and I think you know how can you teach that well actually I think you, you look at people and sort of say okay well what what is their perspective on life are they kind of reflecting on things that they've missed and the opportunities they've missed or are they actually looking at the, the future are they looking um, prospectively and thinking okay well how can i become better than i was yesterday um how can we become a better team than we were last season and i think those guys are you know it's how they view themselves and the world around them again i think that that often underpins that that desire and that motivation we, we know as well people are people like sir alex ferguson who was very successful at Manchester United. Um, he was 
pretty much motivated by a fear of failure as well. And, and this constant that actually, if he didn't shape up his A game and, and change the structure of the club and evolve it, then his competitors would overtake him. And therefore, that really pushed him and dri- drove him towards constantly evolving, bringing in new, new sports science techniques into the football club and so forth. Some of the really successful business people had goals that seemed impossible when they set them. You know, when they were maybe, you know, in their teens, they had this goal and it just seemed just impossible, but they had that goal. It wasn't that they strived towards that one specific goal. They just made sure the processes were right. Because what we know about successful people is part of it is about opportunity. Part of it is something happening that seems like luck. But when it happens, they've done the processes, they've done the right things to make sure they can grasp the opportunity and to make sure they can make the most of it. What happens with people that don't take care of those processes is the opportunity presents itself and often they don't even recognize it because they're, they're not in a position at this point to, to grasp such an opportunity. So I think it comes, comes back down to making sure that those processes are in place and saying, okay, here's my overall goal. What are my smaller goals? Okay, I need to start up a business. What are the smaller goals within starting up a business? Okay, it's making sure my finances are right. It's making sure that I've got a really nice website. What are the processes in setting up a really nice website? So, so it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So you focus on all these smaller aspects. Then when the opportunity comes, you're in the position or your business is in the position to make the most of that opportunity. I mean, there isn't a really successful person out there that hasn't, hasn't had, you know, almost like a stroke of luck. Something's happened. Um, whether it's in the in the sector that they're involved in, or whether it's a specific person that they've they've come across, something happens in their lives and they grab it, and it's an opportunity. But they're ready to grab it, and I think that's a key thing as well. I want to, you know, you're you're a couple of pretty smart chaps to use an English term. <laughs> I wanted to ask uh, each one of you, Martin. Let's start with Martin. When you were, you know decide okay you know let's let's throw a book together what the heck and uh, that sounds like a good goal and uh, you started taking all your years and years of knowledge and research and 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 basically converting it from what was in your head and what was into your assignments and your discussions and your debates into written form for you what was your aha moment where something you knew was real became a core understanding you got i think it was probably i think it's chapter nine which is called adapt we've known for a while that human beings um, and performers can adapt to lots and lots of difficult situations. But actually researching around that chapter and starting to read people's stories of the stuff they've gone through uh, really hit home to me how adaptable human beings are uh, within any context. You know, there's a story in the book about the Robertson family who were shipwrecked by killer whales in the Pacific Ocean. And all they were left with was um, a dinghy, so just an inflatable boat, and that was it. And they had to kill turtles. They had to kill sharks um, to actually get food to survive. And this family, I think the family of five of them, survived this horrific experience. And actually, when we relate that experience to the experience of athletes or the experience of business professionals, often they haven't had to go through that level of adversity. Um, so actually, they can tolerate much more than they think they can tolerate. And that really was something that became a reality when I started writing that chapter because I started to see all these different stories and started to understand that business people, athletes, can face more than they think they can face. You know, we often hear athletes talk talk about, you know, I can't stand failure. Um, I can't stand it when the coach drops me from the team. Um, actually, in reality, 
the evidence suggests that they can stand all of these things and they can tolerate them. And by using the language I can't stand them, I can't tolerate, they actually talk themselves out of a lot of good stuff, a lot of opportunities that they could do. They talk themselves out of it. So that, for me, was the moment where I thought, actually, even though I'd known about it, about the concept, um, this is kind of happening in the real world with everybody, not just athletes and business people, but there's stories from all over the world which show us how adaptable human human beings can be. Well, you must have got also a, a taste of that when you were in the editing phase of the book because that could be brutal. It's like, hey, we finished it, give it to an editor, and suddenly said, great, now we can start. And you're going, what? Yeah. <laughs> I thought we were finished. Yeah, you have to be resilient uh, to, to write a book, I think. Um, but actually, you know, in all seriousness, it, it's really nice to write a book like this because me and Jamie – um, quite often write academic pieces for research journals and research chapters and there's a very specific way of writing a very formulaic way of communicating your ideas with a book like this you, it's more of a conversation with the reader you can be very very free-flowing in the way that you write so actually it's a really it was a really nice thing to write I think because it, it meant that we could communicate in the way that we want to communicate with um, everyday people not just you know stuffy uh, academics um, so it's a really nice process i think well it was also it's all kind of like reflects what your book's about too you've been struggling with a specific style what you're you, you've you know it's like ah oh, you've done again and again and again and you just you blaze through those reports but now that you've given something with a bit more creativity you've got the luxury of saying okay well we can bang out this text but how can we make this text way more entertaining so then you get to dig into it and do stuff uh and and have the luxury of playing with it uh compared to when you're doing the academic pieces I think it's right. I think creativity is the right word. I think. I think we saw this as a creative process, but but to have creativity, you need space, um, not just space in terms of your physical space. So when I don't know if Jamie's the same, but when I'm writing, I like to have a, a clean, tidy environment. I like to be able to think clearly, but also um, mental space. So actually, making sure things are done. You know, your everyday tasks and activities you've got mental space to dedicate to this this piece of work um you know to be creative i think takes a mindset uh, it takes you removing yourself from everyday stuff and, and putting yourself in a good state of mind to really write well hmm. let's hear from jamie i think probably um one of the key things for me was uh you know when we talk about control and uh, you know we've known for a long time that i think in the work that martin and and, and i do that you know, individuals often become very irritated and agitated by trying to control things that they have really got no influence over. You know, I once worked with a professional golfer who, you know, said that he got really stressed by playing when it was windy. And uh, I had quite a sarcastic conversation with him. I remember once saying, well, unless you've got divine influence, you're probably going to be quite um, quite anxious and quite worried about the rest of your golf career because he was he was really trying to control the weather. And, and I, I think for me that actually given us an opportunity to start to articulate some of our our thoughts and suggestions about how individuals can control the controllables can give that sense of perspective and control to what they do in the build-up to big events was was something that was quite therapeutic because I think generally when I've been working with people I got quite frustrated that they would always focus on the uncontrollable or not always but in most cases and it just gave us an opportunity to get something down in a hopefully a palatable fashion that would enable people to perhaps alleviate some of the the simple mistakes that we see individuals doing on quite a regular basis that actually focusing on the uncertainty rather than focusing on the, the process and the controllable aspects about what they can do. I, th I think another thing as well that, you know, really intrigued me and, and perhaps when I was working with Martin on this as well is around 
you know, how resilient people can be. And I guess when we were all formulating the backdrop to this, we were sort of reading around different areas and of, of resilience and different contexts of which human beings put themselves through. When we think of, you know, the world wars, the horrors of war, we think of um, people surviving um, life-threatening situations from, you know, natural disasters to terrorist attacks. And and actually, we are, as, 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 de- as a definition, very ro- robust. We are able to deal with unbelievable um, deprivation and, and challenge. And I think that was really interesting to actually unpick some of that but actually unpick the psychology behind how people do deal with those difficult situations and ultimately a lot of it was around you know previous experiences have they dealt with previous experiences well but also that the mindset that this the psychological strategies they had when they were dealing with those particularly arduous and, and adverse situations. So I think they were the, the key things from me, really, about control and about learning around, around a lot more resilient and what makes resilient people. I find a lot of time when you're discussing stuff, uh, we're, we've got this thing planned, we're working on it as a group, we've got three or four people talking. People spend way too much time talking about what if this happens, what if that happens, and, and you kind of do all this imagining where you think things are going to happen a certain way and then when you actually walk into the real situation it's nothing like that so why do people have to do that why do they have to spend time and energy worrying about scenarios that never actually come to fruition is it just part of the human process of, of people becoming familiar with the situation is it a control mechanism how do people uh, uh, approach a project and not worry about the fantasy of how it's going to work and coming up with a bunch of solutions that you will never, ever need? Or is that part of the process that uh, everybody needs to get through? I think it, it's kind of similar to what we talked about earlier in terms of just making sure those those first few things that you do, um, that you're focused on those things. I think one of the biggest problems with starting projects is just starting the project, putting that first piece of work together, you know, putting something down on the page, is a very difficult barrier to face. Once the individual does that, um, they, they're in momentum in the same way you would be in a sports performance. It works the same way on a project. You can talk about it for, for you know for days and days and weeks and weeks, but actually it's only when somebody starts the process and puts something on paper that it really starts to happen. So we would encourage them to, to make that happen as soon as possible. Bearing in mind that that first couple of things you write might be scrapped at a later stage. You know, it might be complete rubbish what you've written down, but the point is it's just getting past that block, that mental block of overthinking things and procrastinating. Just get something down, just start the project, and then things will take it forward. Um, and that's a really important thing, I think. Just just make a start. Well, I, I, I must agree because basically as soon as you start something, the universe will throw you problems and then you've got lots of things to think about. It's like, oh, how do we overcome this and how do we overcome that? And, and that's where the momentum comes from. It, it's not by having this perfect, oh, we're going to do this and then this is going to happen and this is going to happen. It never works that way. So, yeah, for sure. Jump in, get started, and then you're going to be busy. Yeah, that's right because – I mean, in some ways, from what we've learned about people's flexibility, people's adaptability, it, it's actually when you're within something, you're working on it, um, it's actually much easier to dodge bullets and to go around things and to leapfrog things, um, things that you couldn't have predicted beforehand. So actually, it's kind of pointless, that bit before where you're thinking about all the different problems that can happen, because the likelihood is, 
is that something will happen that you couldn't predict and that you couldn't have put down on paper before you started the project. You know, it's just such an unpredictable environment. You know, the business context, um, the sport world, they're so unpredictable that it's impossible to plan for every single eventuality. The important thing is, is, to, is to, to, to get in their head first and to deal with things as they arise. I think sometimes as well, and, and this links back to some of the, the work that's been done on sort of you know, motivation, Carol Dweck's work in particular, is that some people will be very fixed in their mindset. So they would often go into a, a new situation going, this is going to be really difficult and I'm not sure I can cope with it. Whereas other people are going there with a growth mindset and actually say, it's going to be difficult, but it's going to be a great learning experience. And I'm really interested to see what skills I develop and nurture and, and foster through this experience. And I think sometimes, you know, we can we can play about with helping people to go from a fixed to a growth mindset because we know that they're more likely as well to perhaps deal with with difficult situations. The fact that actually putting themselves in a, a tough training regime but it, but they're going to learn so much about themselves they, they're going to develop physically they're going to develop mentally and it's going to be a it's going to be a journey rather than perhaps always focusing on um, the end point or, the, or the, the what ifs it's about focusing more more so on the journey and getting the satisfaction from that journey as well because certainly in sport we know a lot of athletes often feel extremely relieved when they've won Olympic gold medals and, and often actually disclose feeling more satisfaction with the process of getting there than with actually winning the Olympic medal itself, which kind of doesn't always make sense to us. But but it shows us that actually those people do get a lot of sense of achievement from that four-year journey. And the gold medal just verifies the hard work and endeavor that they've put in. But probably they get more satisfaction from the journey rather than the, the actual outcome itself. Well, I, I think it also goes back to, you know, uh, everybody from the outside looking in for them that's what they perceive the goal is and and you know you look at the people and we talked about this earlier about wow he's so successful and then you talk to the guys yeah i mean i was an overnight success it only took me 15 years so i i think for a lot of people it, their their whole perception is you look at the superstars you look at the successful people and say, oh if only i was like that not realizing there's a tremendous amount of work and effort and planning and pain that they went through to get where they are, and and I don't understand why people can't un, you know look at that and say, wow, that guy's super successful. Gosh, he must have really tried really hard to get there. Instead of just saying, I wish I could be like that, and being lazy. It's a good point. I mean, we see that a lot in UK soccer because um, myself and Jamie worked a little bit um, in soccer clubs where we work with the academies, which are the guys that are just before they make it to the pro level. These are the guys coming up. Um, from you know age of 16 to about 21 and we see that when a player bursts onto the scene at 21 it, it's almost as if they appear by magic but what we see is that individual starting the academy process at age nine and actually going through year after year after year facing rejection um, facing deselection facing injury you know f for 10 or 12 years before they finally emerge as a professional athlete and all of that stuff that happens um, the process that person goes through is more important than that, that debut that they make, that debut performance. Everything that's happened to them has kind of made them who they are at that point. But people don't always see that. Um, and I guess it's trying to educate people, educate business people and athletes around that fact that, look, it's the work you put in the beforehand that is the really important part. Mm. If you haven't got those processes in place, if you haven't got a good foundation, when you do make it to the pro level – when you do um, start running your own business, you'll find yourself starting to falter because you haven't got those strong foundations in place. You have to go through tough situations and pressure um, to be able to be successful in the long term. 
Now, I, I wanted to ask you guys, where can people go to find out more information about this book and to do uh, continued research once they've finished reading the book? One of the things that we kind of said about the book, I guess, is it's evidence-based. And what we've done um, at the end of every chapter is provide some references, um, provide some sources. Some of them are online. Um, some of them are, are book-based sources. So they can kind of go ahead and, and have a read around those areas um, if they like. Um, one of the things that we kind of tried to do in the book as well is provide examples from athletes all throughout the book. Um, nice quotes. You know, autobiographies from athletes are, are a really rich source of people facing tough situations, people preparing for pressure, people setting really difficult goals and getting those processes in place. So I'd always advise business people uh, and even our students who are taking exams and doing assessments to read autobiographies of athletes. There is a tremendous amount to be learned from the way these guys um, approach difficult and tough situations. Uh, we've had Dr. Martin Turner and Dr. James Barker on the show today. What business can learn from sports psychology? Thanks for coming on the show, guys. It was awesome. Pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for having, having us. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show. And do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.